are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are back with an episode on inhalant misuse. And this is a deep dive into the misuse of all sorts of different types of inhalants. This is a commonly overlooked substances that we frequently probably see, but just don't think to ask about because patients don't directly come to us for treatment. Right, Paula? Right. And I think it's also because of the age group that commonly uses, we don't see it, but it is happening. Yes. So a lot of this data, just so we can give credit, comes from inhalants drug facts from NIDA, April of 2020. And then there was also another article in the Permanente Journal. There was an article titled The Clinical Assessment and Treatment of Inhalant Abuse by Rad Pavar. And this was came out in June of 2023. This was an excellent article. And so this is where most of our data came from. And starting us off, just talking a little bit about the epidemiology. And like Paula said, it's just sometimes the population are of people that are using. This is something that we aren't typically seeing. That from NASDA, it's estimated that Overall, 9% of the U.S. populations age 12 and older, so that is equivalent to about 22 million people, have used an inhalant for its psychoactive properties at least once. And that data is a little bit old. That's back from 2011. But so at least 10% approximately of our patients have at least probably tried an inhalant. And then... Getting into our most recent data, it tends to occur disproportionately among adolescents and young adults, and it impoverished or marginalized cultures are the ones that seem to have higher rates of use. And I would also say, even, even when we get out of that younger groups, we do see a little bit higher rate sometimes in our groups that suffer from homelessness. And so we get back into... that disproportionately impoverished and lower income because of, again, sometimes just cheaper and access to psychoactive substances. Does that make sense? And and I have seen that. So even sometimes if you're seeing it in older populations, it's typically in those kind of limited resources. So among people aged 12 and older in 2021, it was about 0.8% or about 2.2 million people reported using inhalants in the past 12 months. And this is all from NASDA. And then eighth graders, an estimated 3.6% in 2022 reported use past year. This is past year use. And 2.4% of 10th graders and 1.8% of 12th graders. So we see a steady decline. So you're highest in the 8th graders, then dropping by high school. And monitoring, that was from monitoring the future. And among age 12 and older in 2021, the 
average is 0.1% or about 335,000 people had met the criteria for an inhalant use disorder in the past 12 months. So it's rare use when we're looking at it from just a frequent or daily use. So that's why we're not seeing it. But when we looked at those numbers, like it's still common lifetime use. So hopefully that makes sense. Kids who are middle school and high school age, we see more female students than male students using inhalants, which is kind of interesting because we generally have more males using substances as a rule, but we're seeing this trend with more females beginning to catch up with males. And in the case of inhalants, more females overall. So that's an interesting finding and uh, something to consider as well, that this is not just your stereotypical boys, you know, um, sniffing or inhaling, you know, gasoline or anything like this. It's also teenage, eighth grade, that age group girls. No, that's great. That's really good to point out. So Paula, let's talk about a little bit about some of what are the products? So when we say inhalant, what are those? What are what are typically these kids and teens and then even adults? What are they using? So we they break them into typically categories. So we're talking about solvents initially. So when we talk about a solvent, we're usually saying these are, and this comes directly just from NIDA. It's industrial household products. So we think about things like gasoline, which you're just talking about, lighter fluid, paint thinners, things like that. Then you get into your office supply solvents. So correction fluid, markers, glue, those kind of things. Now we're into your next category, which is aerosols. And I think that's what besides the solvents, that's what people are most familiar with. So your household aerosol items include your spray paints, but your less common, and this is one that I think many people aren't familiar with, was your vegetable oil sprays, your computer cleaning products, your hair and deodorant sprays. I think that's sometimes what you see with your females, right? And then now your gases found in household or commercial products, including butane lighters, propane tanks. And then what was, we quote the whippets. So whipped cream aerosols or dispensers. And then used as anesthesias. So that also falls under the category of gases, but this is the subcategory. We have your ether, your chloroform, your nitrous oxide, and we'll, we'll go into a little bit more deal because with your, your nitrous and the whippets, you kind of have these niche kind of populations where they have specific uses and specific populations that will abuse those. And we'll, we'll come back to those. And then you have your nitrites. And those are what we'll see usually sold kind of in small brown bottle, but labeled as what we think of. And interesting because who even has a VCR anymore, but like video head cleaner room room deodorizers your liquid aromatics and leather cleaners things like that and what are the routes of use paula so talk to us a little bit about that how are people using them well it depends on which product they're using obviously but pretty common for you hear about sniffing 
or snorting. So they're sniffing or snorting fumes directly from a container. They could be bagging, which is sniffing or inhaling fumes from substances sprayed um, and deposited inside a plastic or paper bag, which is very dangerous, of course, especially plastic bags. Um, and you're impairing, you know, cognition, and people will end up with suffocation injuries. They could uh, people also use sprayed aerosols directly into the nose or mouth, which we'll talk about the downsides of that, especially with products that contain freon or other coolant agents can be really um, dangerous, both locally and to the vagus nerve. Uh, I think we've all heard about huffing, and that's probably the term that gets used the most for inhalant um, abuse. But in huffing specifically refers to um, using an inhalant-soaked rag stuffed in the mouth. And you'll often see, like at a rave, you'll see people who have um, bandanas or other cloths that are soaked in a solvent and then tied around their nose and mouth as well. Um, very commonly, nitrous oxide is going to be inhaled from a balloon. And if you look up on Reddit or look on any of these forums, you'll see multiple ways, uh, routes of using nitrous, most of them um, involving a balloon. So it just depends on which product you're using, whether you're using the halogenated hydrocarbons or an aerosol or gas or the nitrites and, and the purpose for which you're using it as to how people are using them. But um, because they're using, because the high of inhalants is typically quite short-lived, the sniffing or bagging or huffing is often repeated over and over again to get a more sustained high. So you see people that are doing it over um, a long period of time to get a continuous hit or a re-hit of the CNS effect that they're seeking. As you're talking, the typical effect is only minutes. And so many, that's where it's, it is repeated over and over. What are some of the effects? So why do people want to abuse these household substances and everyday common things in the first place? What's the appeal, Paula? Well, these are you know highly volatile compounds, right? Halogenated hydrocarbon, um, hydrocarbons or alkyl nitrites, and they are rapidly absorbed into the brain, like they go right through the blood-brain barrier, and they actually produce an effect very similar to alcohol or sedative yeah. hypnotics. And if you think about it, we use nitrous oxide and um, ether and chloroform as anesthetic. And so people like that dissociative or sedative effect. And so they can um, put people kind of out or in this dissociative state. But what we also find, and I thought this was interesting from the article you mentioned, Darlene, is that these volatile um, solvents also have an initial excitatory effect on the yeah. dopamine system of the brain. And we know that all things kind of addiction related are uh, live and reside in the dopaminergic reward system, which involves the ventral tegmental area of the brain, the amygdala, you know, and the prefrontal cortex, and the neurotransmitters that run that area of the brain, including dopamine and GABA, and apparently inhalants um, actually activate the dopamine system. And then following activation of the dopamine system, you get a CNS depression, which is what people are often looking for, which is mediated by GABA, with the GABA pathway. So you've got two major addictive neurochemicals at play when you use inhalants. You've yeah. got activation of the dopamine system, and then you've got 
CNS depression with the GABA pathway being activated. And so people are looking for that intoxicating, first that like high dopamine rush of pleasure and reward, and then the, the depressing, not the depressing, sorry, the depressant sedative kind of anesthetic effect um, through GABA. And of course, some of the products have a slightly different effect um, compared to others. What does it look like? So they describe kind of the effect. So the short-term effect are very similar to alcohol. And now it makes a lot of sense when what we just talked about is when you see that effect on the brain. So you will see slurred and distorted speech. You see, obviously, euphoria because you've got that initial excitatory effect and that activation of those dopaminergic neurons. Again, we've got lack of coordination, control of body movements, dizziness. Some people even have some lightheaded or even have hallucinations, even sometimes kind of like um, delusional feelings, like even sometimes what we would see more like in your psychedelic realm. So really interesting. I think it's again, because you have the activation of multiple pathways. And you can then get now because it is a C, it affects GABA then with repeated inhalations because of its short acting effect. Then you start to get the sedation, the CNS depressant effect, more GABA effect. So you start, you, they'll report some vomiting, drowsiness, headache, and then it will, again, depend on the type. So there's depending on the different types of inhalant that you're using, there's specific effects that you can get. Like nitrites, for example, because when it's being misused, it's ordered to improve, particularly like sexual pleasure. So what's it doing? It's expanding and relaxing blood vessels. And so you're seeing a lot of that like dizziness and giddiness kind of feeling. Some of the long-term effects, so volatile solvent, solvents are particularly toxic. And so you're going to see things like chemical pneumonitis. And a really interesting, what we'll see is white matter degeneration in the brain. So this is volume loss from, and this is from direct toxicity, myelin degeneration, polyneuropathy, hepatotoxicity, renal toxicity, bone marrow suppression. And they have been linked to cancers, including so some bone marrow cancers because of that bone marrow toxicity. So lymphoma and leukemia. And also, we will see liver and kidney damage, hearing loss. The, there are risks right away immediately of using inhalants. Um, probably one of the ones we, well, they're all dangerous. And We'll talk about them. So asphyxiation is especially dangerous. No one wants that. And that's from repeated inhalations um, yeah. that lead to high concentrations of the inhaled um, gases. And that in and of itself can just be dangerous because people will drop their oxygen sats, lose consciousness, etc. And also we can have this displacement of oxygen in the bloodstream and you end up with um, low oxygenation and people basically asphyxiate. You get suffocation. So we talked about that already where your people are, you know, soaking rags 
with solvents and inhaling them in a in a small space in order to maximize the fumes, especially with a plastic bag over the head. And we've all heard terrible stories of people who um, have had you know something volatile in a plastic bag, and then of course they pass out, and then they inhale and uh, the plastic bag and suffocate that way. You can have seizures from inhalant use, definitely that's a risk. And then of course you can have the ultimate, just like going into a coma where the brain gets so overwhelmed by the neurotoxicity of certain inhalants that it just, people go into a coma and don't come out. So mm-hmm. um, you also have the other kind of behavioral consequences of inhalant use. So when someone's using inhalants, they obviously have impaired judgment. They don't always have um, control over their bodily functions. Think of it like alcohol, sedatives, anesthetics. So they may be, or they certainly are at risk for accidents, violence, motor vehicle fatalities, and um, sexual violence and risky sexual behavior, especially since some of these substances are frequently associated and used with with sex. So they're chemsex chemicals. And so you see increased sexually risky behaviors with them. And so you get immediate consequences from that. And downstream, you can have like increased risk of sexually transmitted infections and pregnancy. So those are some of the immediate effects. And then also you can have direct physical effects from these in terms of burns. So burns from, you know, using propane or butane lighters um, actual physical injury from some of the aerosolized products, especially yeah. those with Freon or other coolants, people who are putting them directly into their nose or mouth and spraying them. And then you're going to talk about some of the, you know, the most um, serious one right now, but there are some very significant risks to using inhalants um, with paints, etc. And anyone who's taking the addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry board exam, they love this topic. They love asking you about, you know, the 11 or 13 year old who comes into the emergency room and urine tox green is negative and they have altered mental status and they have a face that's speckled in spray paint, you know, so just be aware <laughs> that they, they, in fact, I think, do you remember, Darlene, when we took our exam, there was a disproportionate number of questions about inhalants. Um, they're kind of interesting, I think, from a toxicology point of view. And there's some nuanced um, effects and negative effects of inhalants based on the inhalant. So like some of them cause B12 deficiency. Some of them cause this myelin sheath theme, um, disruption, et cetera. So if you are studying for an exam, you want to know exactly which one causes which downstream effect. Yes. Well, and you... You bring up a really important, because this is common, sudden sniffing death. What What is that? And this seems to be associated particularly with the abuse of butane, propane, and chemicals and aerosols. And this is, and the mechanism of actions or how this seems to be mediated, um, catecholamine release seems to be the most common cause of sudden s- sniffing death. And, uh, it can also be associated with chlorofluorocarbons such as freon that's inhaled directly in the mouth. And I'll go into that because that can that's a little bit different. So when you get this catecholamine release, so particularly when you see hydrocarbons, so halogenated hydrocarbons, so that's your 
your gasoline, your benzenes, your toluene. So, but it leads to an arrhythmia. So you typically supraventricular or ventricular tachyarrhythmias, and you get sympathetic activation, myocardial sensitization to that whole surge of catecholamines. The other etiology then is almost the opposite. So you get this, what we call cooling injury to the airways from the freon that's inhaled. And this causes in a very intense reflex vagal nerve inhibition and reflex bradycardia. This can evolve into asystole or secondary ventricular arrhythmias, but both can result in sudden death. And that can be with their first use, their first time ever trying it just one time or after repeated uses. So that's what sudden sniffing death is. Poppers and whippets, Paula, tell us a little bit more about that. You talked about the B12 deficiency that's associated with the alkyl nitrites. And tell us, explain specifically whippets, what populations are are usually abuse this and some of the like ramifications of misuse with poppers and whippets. Yeah, so poppers, whippets, snappers, you hear about these quite a lot. And um, I'm always amazed at how much I hear about this in my practice. I guess I'm not amazed, but it's interesting because they can be really pervasively used. This is all kind of in the nitrite family. Whippets are um, aerosolized nitrous oxide gas. So think it's basically nitrous that are sold in little metal cartridges. They kind of look like the metal cartridges that we use to blow up our bicycle tubes when we're out on a ride and we have a little CO2 cartridge, but instead they're filled with nitrous. And whippets are commonly used by um, you know, emptying these metal cartridges into a balloon and then people inhale from the balloon, basically inhaling nitrous just like you do at the dentist's office, but you're doing it on your own. And it creates this very short-lived high that's gone in actually even a few seconds often. And so people will do it over and over again. And nitrous has an interesting effect. A nitrous oxide has both an anesthetic and an opioid effect. This is why it's really well um, used in the dentist office because it's absorbed directly through the lungs and um, it causes this kind of well, it causes an analgesic effect and this dissociated effect so people can feel much more relaxed. And of course, it's well known as, as a laughing gas. Um, it also relaxes uh, soft, um, excuse me, smooth muscle. So that brings us more to poppers. And poppers, um, it's a liquid, so it's a liquid amyl nitrite but it's very volatile. So as soon as it's exposed to the air, it vaporizes into a nitrate, so amyl nitrate or nitric monoxide. And this gas is then inhaled. So why is this called, why are these called poppers? Well, they come as tiny glass bottles often or plastic bottles, and people will squeeze them until they pop. And then the liquid is then sniffed or snorted or placed right into the nostrils or right below the nostrils and very, very commonly used um, as part of uh, enhancing sexual function and pleasure. So we see them being used a lot by adolescents and I'd say a lot of adults, very, very commonly used in the men who have sex with men uh, population. 
for actually anyone who is receiving um, receptive anal sex because the effect is that it relaxes smooth muscle and a lot of people will use this to vasodilate in general and it gives them a feeling of euphoria and relaxation and then the smooth muscle relaxation is well known to make um, certain sexual activities um, easier to tolerate. So they obviously have significant risks Whippets, so the aerosolized um, aerosolized nitrous oxide gas, actually causes a B12 deficiency. So remember that if you see people who are using whippets, I've seen a lot of people who use whippets. Um, I had a patient who was quite a high functioning um, attorney uh, and was actually having trouble with alcohol, but then also mentioned that they were compulsively using whippets and were having a lot of neurological problems. And we were trying to determine if it was related to heavy alcohol use or whippets. And I actually really think it was related to whippets because of this B12 deficiency. Um, and then poppers, as we talked about, you know, remember that it's this liquid amyl nitrite that turns into a nitrate gas, so mon uh, nitric monoxide gas. And then this causes smooth muscle relaxation, which enhances sexual function. One of the things that's interesting to remember about, um, about poppers is it causes vasodilation. That's kind of the desired effect and smooth muscle relaxation. And is used um, in combination commonly with, um, with sexual behavior. So because of the vasodilation, you have a much more increased risk of HIV transmission because you have yeah. increased blood flow to the area, commonly increased risky sexual behaviors. And so you have this kind of confounded risky effect. So if you do have folks who are using nitrites, um, poppers in particular involved with sex, commonly you see it being used in addition to methamphetamine or cocaine, which really does increase some cardiovascular risks because of the different effects on vasodilation and vasoconstriction. Um, or ED drugs like uh, Tadalafil or Sildenafil, there's some very, very serious consequences to combining those drugs. You can have sudden cardiac arrest, you get rapid um, bradycardia like you were talking about, or tachyarrhythmias. And so it's very, very important as a harm reduction measure to talk to your patients who are engaging in chemsex that they must not use certain chemicals in combination with each other, specifically nitrites in combination with erectile dysfunction drugs, nitrites in combination with stimulants such as methamphetamine or cocaine. And then also be sure that you're offering them PrEP, PEP and other, and advising them about the risk of contracting HIV and to always use condoms. And of course, spreading the word that inhalants even though they seem benign and like on, in online, there's a lot of benign, you know, websites and forums. They're really not benign. I mean, you could tell from just this podcast, Darlene, that they they carry significant risk. And so, uh, part of harm reduction there is educating people about the risks. Yes. No. I think you can, we can't say that enough. Absolutely. So some of the signs. So particularly, this is a. Uh, even just for parents, but also educators and treatment providers out there, when do you suspect like inhalant misuse? So some of the, just the typical signs, so chemical orders on the breath, clothing, paint stains on hands, face, or clothes. Um, and then family members, if they're noticing empty spray paint or solvent containers, chemical soaked rags or clothing, and then just appearance. So like 
Sometimes, again, it looks like alcohol intoxication sometimes, but that's the same thing. ED, if you have your alcohol levels negative, but you, it looks like possibly alcohol, consider inhalant misuse. Slurred speech, nausea, loss of appetite, and inattentiveness, lack of coordination is key. Irritability, depression symptoms, all could be signs of misuse. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, uh, well, you said this at the beginning, but a very common source of inhalant um, use are the uh, computer gas dusters. And I noticed that they're behind the counter now. Um, If you go and buy those, you actually have to request them behind the counter. But you were saying like some kids going through like eight a day or there. So if if family members, especially since this is a problem of children and preteens predominantly, if you're seeing your kids are buying all these, you know, corrective fluids or air dusters or asking you to buy those, you must be really suspicious. The other thing is for a while, um, my husband was working at Home Depot and he said he could not believe how many people buy spray paint, like more than our painting. You know, you have this whole stream of construction workers, but he said there's a huge problem. Like Home Depot and Lowe's knows it's a problem. And that's why they're trying to sit in place some safeguards and that's why they don't sell spray paint to minors anymore and they're trying to set in different states have different laws about the sale of uh, aerosolized products to minors because of this problem and also i don't know if you've noticed this when you've traveled to different countries or like you're talking about some impoverished communities being more susceptible to this but you'll see it's so sad you'll see kids hanging around gas stations and or hanging around with bandanas and they're just completely stupefied. I was talking to my psychiatric PA today in clinic telling her that we were going to do this episode tonight and she used to practice in rural Alaska and she was just saying this was a huge problem in Alaska's communities. So these are the signs to look for and like you said it can take some problem solving from a toxicology point of view if you're seeing kids who are stupefied and you're not really sure what the cause is. Treatment of acute injuries, and this can be quite extensive depending on the type of presentation. And then we have there's some data and information regarding like actual withdrawal syndromes and treatment for that. So let's talk about that a little bit. So yeah, what does what does withdrawal syndrome look like? How do you treat like injuries and um, acute intoxication? Well, acute CNS symptoms and cardiopulmonary symptoms or traumas or burns. I mean, you just it's emergency management, um, and so obviously decontamination of the patient, and then your ABCDs basically making sure that they've got airway and are breathing and that you're addressing any kind of tachyarrhythmias or bradycardia, anything like that. Uh, gastric, con- I, and I was interested to to read this, Darlene, and of course it makes yeah. sense, but gastric decontamination is contraindicated because you don't want to force vomiting for people who have swallowed or um, accidentally actually had an ingestion of volatile hydrocarbons because you have a high likelihood of aspiration and um, you also don't want to create any risk of chemical pneumonitis or esophageal injury by um, having people decontaminate their GI tract. So those are things to consider in the acute setting. There's a lot to be said about methoglobinemia, which is the state um, of 
and also carboxyhemoglobinemia, where basically kids and, and adults, I guess, who are using some of these inhalants displace oxygen in um, favor of the inhalant gas that they're using. And so they'll come in hypoxic and you've got to figure out why and arterial blood ABGs need to be used to find out what's going on. And then you have to try and get them um, hy basically hyperventilated and maybe even use something like uh, um, albuterol or an alpha-adrenergic alpha to open up airways and get um, that cyanosis to reverse. That's a really good point. And it also talked about being very careful about using epinephrine. It's like you said, sometimes they might be coming in and they may be quite bradycardic, but because of the catecholamine sensitive myocardium, you have to, you've got to do very careful cardiopulmonary monitoring and the risk of cardiac arrest is high after acute exposure. Beta blockers can be considered to protect the catecholamine sensitive myocardium. And so that, that's something depending on exposures that can be considered. And then you really have to do in this situation, with these inhalants, you've got to do the full body scan. So it's like you said, you need to check the mouth, the airway, look for burns, treat those accordingly. And you, and like I said, you've got to, you, you've got to do all the testing. You've got to do the ABG because you've got to be able to figure out what, if we've got a metabolic acidosis and electrolyte abnormalities and treat those accordingly to rule out occult trauma. Because of sometimes again, if you've had altered mental status, there can you you can't always you, you know you want to make sure that there's not also a head injury because injuries that can occur because of that. So long term, like as far as withdrawal symptoms with repetitive and chronic use, and what does that look like? So. And that's what can be hard because you can have acute intoxication and then you can have withdrawal. So with chronic use, there has been a syndrome that has been described and it's very similar to what we would see with alcohol withdrawal and benzodiazepine withdrawal. And if we think about that, that's similar receptors. That's back to the, the same GABA receptors. So you see things like nausea, vomiting, sweating, tremor, tachycardia, sleep disturbances, diaphoresis, psychosis, insomnia, seizures. And we treat it very similar to alcohol withdrawal. So it, because of the cross tolerance between inhalants and alcohol, benzodiazepines has been suggested as possibly first line use. In addition, Good old phenobarbital was found also be to be useful useful in treatment of an inhalant withdrawal. And then there was one study that reported the usefulness of baclofen doses up to 50 milligrams in reducing both withdrawal symptoms and cravings. And, and, and I'm sorry, that wasn't a study, that was in a case series. That there's other things for more longer term. So there was things that might reduce cravings and some of the things, those addictive drivers for repetitive inhalant use. So our mood stabilizers, such as Lamotrigine and Buspirone. And so there was a few case reports that supported that. And then even Risperidone. I thought those were really interesting because I have not 
seen those used before, but that might be something to look up that paper and review that because I thought that was really helpful just to give you some tools in your toolbox if you have a patient who is really struggling with continued use. Mm-hmm. All right, Paula, anything else that we didn't cover? No, I don't think so. I think it's just just reminding you that to do screen if you have kids who are failing school, depressed, anxious, not yeah. focusing, acting strangely, get a really good history and try and see if you can get to the bottom of exactly what they're using. And if it seems too confrontational to ask them directly, remember that with adolescents and children, especially those 50 Use your craft. start <laughs> by asking what their friends are doing. So, hey, do you ever have friends who are sniffing glue or petrol or gasoline or using aerosols or anything like that? And they're much more likely to reveal that than to reveal it about themselves. And if they're not doing it yet, but their friends are, the likelihood of them doing it is actually very high. So it's it's an interesting dilemma. And uh, again, maybe you want to talk to your and get a good history to your folks who have receptive anal sex and see if they are using uh, poppers. And if they are, make sure that you're encouraging them to have the safest use possible, reminding them there's no real safe use. Um, And then providing them with PrEP and also other access to STD screening and prevention. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much, Paula. Have a good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.